From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. And of all the gynecologic cancers, only cervical cancer has had a screening test for early detection, the pap smear. But now, Mayo Clinic researchers hope to change that by developing a minimally invasive early screening test for endometrial cancer, also known as cancer of the uterus. Also on the program, Mayo Clinic pediatric experts explain the fertility preservation program now available through the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. And how falling down doesn't have to be an inevitable part of aging. We'll find out how fall prevention programs can help. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, the pap test. You've heard of that. Probably had a few in your day. I sure have. And that was developed by a Greek physician by the name of George Papanikolaou. Now, you know, my wife is Greek, and she's going to really like me for this. (laughs) So it came into use around the 1940s, but actually he had discovered that you could find malignant cells under the microscope, actually in the 20s or early 30s, but nobody, he never got credit for it. Nobody believed him until around the 1940s when it finally came into use. And, of course, that test is called the pap test or the pap smear and is now used worldwide for the detection and the prevention of cancer of the cervix and other diseases of the female reproductive tract. What he showed was that by gathering just a few cells from the the vaginal tract and looking at them under the microscope, you could actually tell whether or not a woman had cancer of the cervix. Pretty amazing. A huge breakthrough. Absolutely. The pap test changed the lives of millions of women, and now researchers are working on a screening test for endometrial cancer, also known as uterine cancer. Research funded by the National Cancer Institute and Mayo Clinic is developing a screening method using DNA from a tampon for early detection and screening of endometrial cancers. Now, how unique is that DNA from a tampon? Wow. So, and, and we're talking about uterine cancer as opposed to cervical cancer, and the two are connected, but the cervix is just the, the opening of the, of the uterus. With baby boomers now in the age risk category for endometrial cancer, the number of women diagnosed each year is increasing. Here to discuss this new minimally invasive screening method for endometrial cancer is the woman leading the research, Dr. Jamie Bakum Gomez. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Bakum Gomez. Thank you. Dr. Bakum Gomez, pretty exciting stuff and truly unique. Tell us about this using a tampon to diagnose endometrial or uterine cancer. Absolutely. Um, We're very excited about this. We've known for decades that abnormal cells from inside the uterus can be picked on, picked up on pap smears, but it's not very um, commonly picked up that way. There are other markers that are not necessarily visible under the microscope, such as molecular markers, that we can actually now test for. These are changes in DNA, so DNA mutations, um, DNA methylation, which is where the gene is actually turned off because of a a change uh, to what's kind of hanging on to the DNA called methyl groups. Um, and we can pick those uh, those changes up not only in the actual cells that are 
the cancer cells, uh, but when those cancer cells shed and flow down through the cervix into the vagina, they can be picked up, um, those, those signals can be picked up on pap smear, and we're actually taking it to the next level of um, trying to pick them up on the fluid that is in the vaginal uh, canal. Because it's in that fluid. It's in that fluid. And, um, and the reason that we're focusing on detecting this using a tampon is that a tampon is a common hygiene product that most women use. Um, in fact, um, the tampon business in the United States um, in 2015, $1.5 billion. So we mm. know using, using that as a surrogate that this is a very common and well-accepted collection product, so uh, collection device. It's not a special tampon by any means. It's the kind you just buy at the convenience store? Well, what we're doing from, from the research standpoint, um, we're just using the common over-the-counter regular tampon. Mm-hmm. Um, as we develop this test further, it'll likely be something a little bit more specialized. So tell us how this works. Uh, you, you tell the woman uh, to use a tampon, put a tampon in, and then take it out when, and then bring it to you? Is that How does it work? So right now, we have a clinical trial open um, in which we are collecting uh, tampon samples from women who are coming in with abnormal uterine bleeding uh, that are perimenopausal or postmenopausal, so it's still in the research phases. Um, and before they have a biopsy to determine whether or not there is or what the cause of that abnormal bleeding is, um, we're asking them to collect a tampon. Um, they're doing that in the clinic. Uh, we time how long it's been in the vagina because that's also part of the test. We need to figure out exactly how long it uh, it needs to be in the vagina. What's the minimum amount of time? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, then the uh, woman goes on to have her clinically indicated biopsy. And how is it doing so far? Uh, well, so far we've enrolled almost a thousand patients to that to this clinical trial, um, and uh, we are working on the combination of markers, DNA methylation mutation uh, markers, uh, to be able to test in prospectively in those in those uh, samples. Well, this sounds what sounds somewhat similar to Cologuard, where you take a stool specimen and look for abnormal DNA that will tell you whether or not the patient has uh, colon cancer. S- same principle. Absolutely. So Cologuard is a combination of mutations, um, one mutation and and uh, three methylated genes, and they're all, they also look for fecal occult hemoglobin. So it's it's much fecal um, occult hemoglobin. <laughs> fecal Those are doctor words. <laughs> yep, exactly. So fecal occult hemoglobin. They're looking for blood as well. So, but it's a multi-target uh, DNA test um, that is self-collected, and exactly that's exactly what we're trying to um, to do with this type of a test um, is develop something that is. Highly patient accepted, something that provides women um, with high access, meaning they could collect the sample at home and potentially mail it in. That's our ultimate view, or ultimate vision, I should say. That would make, I would imagine, make a big difference for anybody could take part in that. I mean, it could be that someone notices that they're not feeling right or they've got some symptoms, but they don't end up going to see a physician. This would be a good step to get that ball rolling. Absolutely. We know that uh, decreased access to health care um, does worsen survival in certain cancers. So that is that is something that we are um, hoping that ultimately we impact. So uterine cancer itself, what are the symptoms? Who's at, who's at risk for this particular problem? Yeah, so there are very well-known risk factors for uterine cancer. Obesity is probably one of the largest risk factors for, ovarian, or for endometrial cancer. Um, also, uh, having diabetes, hypertension, uh, those are also, and hyperlipidemia, those are risk factors. Having a family history of uterine cancer, 
colon cancer, stomach cancer, um, those symptoms or those uh, cancers tend to, there are families where you can actually see high numbers of those cancers, and that's considered Lynch syndrome, or some families are diagnosed with Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic condition that puts um, women at higher risk for uterine cancer. You don't hear about very many women dying of uterine cancer. I know it happens, but it must not, it is not all that common. So it must be very treatable if you can just make the diagnosis. Right. It is, uh, it is fairly treatable, especially in early stages. Um, early stages, typically the treatment is surgery alone. Um, even in advanced stages, uh, there are potential cures, but usually it requires extensive surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. And the side effects of those are oftentimes long lasting. And what are some of the symptoms of endometrial cancer? Yeah, so symptoms, 90% of women with endometrial cancer will present with some sort of abnormal bleeding, uh, abnormal vaginal bleeding. Um, postmenopausal women, uh, uh, about uh, even though 90% of women with a cancer will present with abnormal vaginal bleeding, only 10% of women who come in with postmenopausal bleeding will actually have a cancer. Well, that's a good thing. It is a good thing. It <laughs> is. But also, all of those women undergo an endometrial biopsy, which is an invasive procedure. And we're looking to try to help avoid that as well. Wow. It's uh, it's just as interesting, just as exciting, just as incredible as Cologuard. So mm-hmm. uh, we wish you all the success in the world. We've been talking about endometrial cancer screening with Dr. Jamie Bacham Gamez. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, you know, September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. We'll discuss some of the other common gynecological cancers, including the deadliest of them all, ovarian cancer. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, we've been talking about endometrial cancer screening and a new method to do that using a tampon with Dr. Jamie Bacham Gamez. But now we'll expand our discussion to other reproductive system cancers because September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. So, Dr. Bacham Gamez, why, uh, why is ovarian cancer the, the worst of all of these? So ovarian cancer has um, kind of a long-standing uh, nickname, and that is that it's a silent killer. Um, the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer can be very vague, despite the fact that it's already in its advanced stages. The signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer typically fall into four categories or four, um, four symptoms, and that is abdominal bloating or distension. Uh, change in appetite or satiety, basically getting full fast when you eat. Um, bowel changes, um, whether it's swinging to constipation or diarrhea. Um, and then bladder changes, uh, frequency or uh, frequency of urination uh, or urgency. So let's go over those once more. Bloating. Uh, just want to make sure that that all of our listeners have these. Mm-hmm. Bloating is one, but that, uh, everybody has that at one time or another, and you sort of write it off. Yeah, we're talking about something that's constant, that's persistent for you know probably more like two weeks or so, rather than an intermittent uh, type of process. Um, but you're right. That's why these signs, these these symptoms are quite vague. All right, and then you had bowel changes, mm-hmm. uh, bladder problems, and, and number two had to do with eating satiety, yeah, early satiety. Yeah, so feeling full fast. Yeah. So is ovarian cancer, in a sense, somewhat like cancer of the pancreas in that because the the ovaries are so deep-seated, the tumor has to get fairly large before it does cause any symptoms, and by that time it has often metastasized or spread elsewhere? 
Yeah, there are different patterns uh, as far as the spread of ovarian cancer, but most often uh, the GI type of symptoms, the bowel changes, and even the early uh, feeling full early in a meal um, are probably related to the metastatic deposits that are on the surface of the small intestine, um, large intestine, and sometimes even the stomach. So what's the five-year survival rate now for women with ovarian cancer and compare that to, let's say, a decade ago? Are we better? We're better, yeah. We've definitely made uh, a lot of progress. Um, I think it's it's hard sometimes to go through to actually dissect out what the five-year survival is for ovarian cancer in general because most ovarian cancers are diagnosed at an advanced stage. Um, one of the most important prognostic aspects is thorough surgery uh, in the beginning of the diagnosis before starting chemotherapy. If you can get it all out, good. If you can get it all out, that actually improves five-year survival. Um, and some studies have actually shown that at five years, um, more than 50% of women are still alive who were diagnosed with advanced stage disease. Where does it usually go to from the ovary? It starts there, but then where does it spread? Um, it likes to go to an organ that's inside the abdomen called the omentum. Uh, it is an organ that hangs down off of the stomach and large intestine. So it's surgery if you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's amenable to surgery, hasn't spread too far, too many places or too far away from the ovaries. Chemotherapy, and what about radiation? Is it ever part of the regimen? Radiation used to be part of the regimen for ovarian cancer, but it has uh, it has fallen out of favor because we've shown that chemotherapy is actually more effective. So treatment for ovarian cancer is a combination of surgery and chemotherapy. Sometimes we give chemotherapy first and then surgery in between two courses of chemotherapy. And what's the average age of the woman diagnosed with ovarian cancer? Most often the woman that's diagnosed with ovarian cancer is going to be in her early 60s. Yeah, Hmm. so pretty young. It is, yes. September being Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, we've talked about endometrial cancer and ovarian cancer. Um, What's up next? Cervical? Well, cervical cancer is uh, also one of our specialties. How deadly is cervical cancer? So cervical cancer, actually, the mortality in the, in the United States as well as in um, other developed nations has dramatically decreased with the introduction of the pap smear um, back in the 1940s. Uh, we also now have the vaccine against the human papillomavirus, which causes most of uh, most cervical cancers. Um, that vaccine, or those vaccines, I should say, because there's actually a series of them um, that are potent- that are available. Um, those vaccines, we don't think we've seen the impact of them yet, um, because those are vaccines that are currently indicated for um, for young women, um, ages 11 and 12. And men, too. And men, right? too. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yep. So you think if enough people, enough of young people get vaccinated, we can pretty much wipe out cervical cancer? What, what percentage of cervical cancers are caused by this virus, HPV? Almost all of them are caused by a high-risk type of virus. 70% are caused by two specific viruses, HPV-16 and HPV-18. And the vaccine good against both of those? It is, yep. All three vaccines that are available um, are include HPV-16 and 18. Well, it's hard to believe, but women can also get cancer of the vagina. Mm-hmm. How often do you see that? So vaginal cancer is much more rare than, than cervical cancer, but it is also most often caused by those same viruses, the HPV viruses. Mm-hmm. The key of that HPV, it's, it really is a cancer vaccine. I think people try to diminish it a little bit, saying, oh, it's a sexually transmitted disease mm-hmm. thing, but it's, it really is a cancer vaccine. Yes, it is. Um, all three of the vaccines that are available are against, um, they include HPV 1618, uh, as well as the new nine-valent vaccine includes other high-risk types of virus as well. So tell us a little bit more about uh, cancer of the vagina. How do you treat that? 
Most of the time, cancer of the vagina is treated with a combination of radiation and chemotherapy. And the chemotherapy is given in a low dose to sensitize the cancer to the radiation. Hmm. So they work synergistically. They kind of yes. work together. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to remove the vagina. Not unless uh, we, we typically try not to l- remove the vagina because it's very close to other vital structures such as the bladder and the rectum. So most often, uh, even stage one vaginal cancers are usually treated with a combination of chemotherapy and radiation. And usually works? Ha- very high success rate, yes. And how about uh, what's the average age of a woman who presents with vaginal cancer? Women with vaginal cancer tend to be a little bit more, a little bit uh, on the older side than those with cervical cancer. Women with cervical cancer are typically in their 30s or 40s. Uh, vaginal cancer somewhere around 60 or 70. And symptoms, bleeding or pain with intercourse or both or actually both. Yeah. So bleeding is probably the most common sign uh, or symptom, but definitely pain with intercourse or even pain uh, with if the tumor is large enough, it can cause pain just by being present. All right, and one more we want to talk about, cancer of the vulva, Mm -hmm. and that's got to be pretty rare. Tell us about that. It is very rare, um, and it's a skin cancer. Um, Cancer of the vulva can usually, can also be caused by human papillomavirus. Um, We typically see uh, kind of a bimodal distribution of vulvar cancer, which means we see it in a younger population of women, and that's usually associated with HPV. Um, infection. And then there's an older uh, population of women that can develop uh, vulvar cancer. And those women are typically in their 80s or 90s. Um, and that's usually associated with having some sort of dermatologic condition like lichen sclerosis, which is not a cancer itself, but can cause uh, symptoms such as itching. When we're talking about the gynecologic cancers, we mentioned premenopausal or postmenopausal. What does estrogen what role does it play in any of or, or all of those? That's a great question. With uterine cancer, some of the risk factors for developing it, obesity, diabetes, actually are associated with a higher level of unopposed estrogen in the body. Um, and that is actually what leads most often to the development of, a uter- of an endometrial uterine cancer. Um, estrogen itself does not play a role when it comes to the development of cervical cancer, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer. Um, In those that are associated with HPV, such as cervical and vaginal cancer, um, oftentimes smoking is one of the uh, risk factors that helps the the virus get incorporated and start turning on those cancer, the cancer machinery genes. Um, And then regarding ovarian cancer, there does not appear to be um, a link between um, estrogen and the development of ovarian cancer. In fact, birth control pills reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. Well, yeah, there you go. September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month. We've been updated by a true expert from the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Bakum Gamez. Thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the fertility preservation program that is offered by the Mayo Clinic Children's Center. And later on in the show, tips for preventing falls in older adults. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Back to school time is a bit like ringing in the new year because some students make resolutions. They plan to study hard, get good grades, and eat a healthy diet. Do food choices make a difference when it comes to academic performance? Are there foods that can boost a child's brain power? Well, there's not one magic bullet food, but what does help are healthy choices and balanced nutrition. A combination of having、um, both protein and carbohydrates together, and you would prefer to have the carbohydrates that are that sort of release slowly over time. Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Vandana Bide recommends that kids eat carbohydrates from whole grain sources. She says to stay away from processed carbs loaded. With sugar, this will help prevent energy spikes, highs followed by lows that can make kids sleepy and distracted. The number one thing I would say is to avoid sugary drinks. So avoid sodas, concentrated even juices. Healthy options for both carb and protein sources include whole grains, fruits, vegetables, low-fat dairy and lean meats. Appropriate meal and snack choices will give your children the fuel they need to be the best they can be at school and in life. And in other news, it's been suspected and reported for years that over-the-counter antibacterial soaps are not as effective as companies claim. Now the FDA has ruled that over-the-counter antiseptic wash products containing certain active ingredients can no longer be marketed. According to the FDA release, companies will no longer be able to market antibacterial washes with these ingredients because manufacturers did not demonstrate that the ingredients are both safe for long-term daily use and more effective than plain soap and water in preventing illness and the spread of certain infections. This rule does not affect consumer hand sanitizers or wipes or antibacterial products used in healthcare settings. The FDA says consumers may think antibacterial washes are more effective at preventing the spread of germs, but we have no scientific evidence that they are any better than plain soap and water. They say, in fact, some data suggests antibacterial ingredients may do more harm than good. Over the long term, for the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives, and I'm Tracy McRae. You know, when you hear your child has cancer, you immediately start thinking about the the treatment options. They might include surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. But what you may not think about are the long-term side effects those treatments can have, including the effect that they can have on your on your child's fertility, their ability to have children down the road. Not something that might have been on your radar, but yes. The Mayo Clinic Children's Center now has started a fertility preservation program, which offers options for fertility rescue in both post-pubertal and pre-pubertal children being treated for cancer or other medical conditions which could affect their fertility. Here to discuss this new program are pediatric urologist Dr. Candice Granberg and pediatric gynecologist Dr. Ozma Javid. Welcome to both of you. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Good to have you. So it's called the Fertility Children's Preservation Programs, and it's part of the Mayo Clinic Children's Hospital. And is this a new program that we didn't have at the Mayo Clinic? Didn't have it before? Yes,、um, it's new to the extent that we're offering it now to pre-pubertal children. There has been an informal、um, program in place to offer this to post-pubertal boys and girls, those who have had、um, changes of puberty, so girls who have had a period or boys who have entered pubertal stages,、uh, because the process is simpler for them in order to preserve their fertility before they undergo any kind of treatment that could affect it in the future. What's new about the program is we can now offer experimental and hopefully soon to be. 
standard techniques to even young children. So you may or may not think of a four- or five-year-old undergoing cancer therapy and think about their long-term prognosis and effect on reproductive potential. But as cancer um, survivors increase in numbers and childhood cancer survival rates improve, they're over 80% now. We know one of the biggest things that think people think about, cancer survivors think about, is their ability to have children in the future. So that's what's innovative or new about the program now. So the, the, the new thing is that you can do kids who are pre-pubertal. Yep. Yeah. So what's the difference? I mean, how does it complicate the situation? Why didn't you do it before? Well, I can speak to the boys because I'm a pediatric urologist. And so for for boys, you have an infertility specialist who's looking at why can't a man have a child. And they'll get a a semen sample and look for the sperm counts, the motility, um, any abnormal shapes of the sperm. And they're able to pluck out the ones that are good and preserve their ability to have children. For a boy who's not able to give a sample, then we actually have to get the tissue out. And so that's the experimental side of it for boys is we actually have to take out a part of their testicle and send it off to the lab and cryopreserve some of it and send some of it off for research. And that's what we're now able to offer these prepubertal boys. And what's the process for girls? It's similar. So for girls, the ones who have not had a period, obviously it would be difficult to have eggs harvested from. Um, in some ways, it actually does not delay their therapy because to actually go through the process of stimulating ovaries and storing eggs for someone who's had a period can delay their treatment by about two to three weeks. This is very similar to what Dr. Granberg referred to. We're really just saving a piece of their tissue from the ovary. And oh, so, so I, you know, explain that, what, what happens to that tissue. So you actually remove a part of the testicle in a male, and so there are sperm in there that you cryopreserve and then ultimately uh, can use to fertilize a, an egg? It, it depends where they're at uh, in puberty. Some of the early stage pubertal boys, they will look for some sperm in that tissue. And if they find that, that's great. They'll save that. If they don't, we actually just save the tissue for the future hopes that we're able to reimplant that tissue and have it become active and be able to produce children from their own tissue down the road. You mean implant it back in the testicle or uh, into or would the you patient? Impl- There's a lot of studies going on in first mice and then primates to see are they able to become fertile after reimplanting tissue, and and that's the hope that they'll be able to do that in humans as well. Can we just go back and and what does cancer treatment, whether it's radiation or chemotherapy, what does cancer treatment do to fertility? It's not very kind to the ovaries and testes usually. So um, chemotherapy depends on the agent, and it definitely depends on the age of the child as well. Um, certain agents are more detri- detrimental for the older age group, and you know some are not very kind the younger you are. But we do have a risk scale. So in terms of how do we determine when to offer this and when not, we do have a risk scale for different chemotherapeutic agents and then also radiation doses that determines whether or not someone is high risk enough to be able to offer offer this technique to them, and if they are, then we do. So um, usually it damages the cells, the actual cells of the ovary or the testicle. Uh, Boys and girls equally, or is it harder for one sex than the other? So that's a good question. Um, In terms of chemotherapy, very equal. Um, Certain agents that we use, you know, they're called alkylating agents. We often use them in most of the childhood cancers. They affect boys and girls equally. Radiation-wise, we actually think boys get affected by radiation doses a lot more. We don't know exactly why, but they're a little bit more sensitive to radiation, um, the immature testicle, than the immature ovary. So uh, is it the parents that, that make the decision about whether or not to proceed with this? And is virtually every child who's going to receive chemo or radiation to that area 
referred to you for this possibility? Yes. And usually the parents are the ones to determine. We do have um, forms in place for those who are 13 uh, years of age and older to be able to give informed consent on their own. So it really does depend on the ability of the child to understand what is happening, the diagnosis, and the long-term effects. We do try to involve the child or adolescent as much as possible. Um, in terms of the experimental technique, obviously the ones that are tissue, you know, saving a piece of the testicle or the ovary, um, we do have to have the parents give consent for that for sure. Is there... A- I can imagine the emotional part that goes into this discussion. Um, If the child is 10 or 12 or 14, but when a child is 4 or 5, that is a hard discussion to have with family members, let alone the child, but Mm -hmm. for the parents to think about the future. Mm -hmm. And so what, uh, how do the, how do those conversations go with these parents? I think it's it's difficult because they're already dealing with a very difficult situation, and then we're asking them to think about something way in the future. And for boys, um, it's it's tough because you look at the size of the testicle, and you're asking to take a piece of the tissue. And in some children, when they're not quite pubertal, you might have to take the entire testicle. So now you're talking about taking an entire part of their body out for the hopes that you can use it in the future understanding that we have ways of putting in a testicular prosthesis when they hit puberty, and maybe the child won't care that they only have one, but they'll have the chance to have a child when they're older. And I think that's part of the conversations we have is when you look at the survivors who've come back and said, I wish somebody would have talked to me about this. I wonder would I be able to have a child. And, And when you look at the ones that are old enough that look backwards on their conversations that they've had, they really wish they would have had the conversations we're trying to have with them at age four or five when they can't really make that decision on their own. Some of this is fairly complicated and and somewhat invasive. Do you ever delay treatment or do you ever have to delay treatment to get this done? Not and for if the, so, is that an issue? Yeah, for the testicle, not so, because they're getting the port placed for their chemotherapy anyway, which is that's a That's a catheter that goes in near the chest to, to get the chemo. Yes, where they're going to get their chemotherapy. And that's a relatively urgent get this in so they can start their chemo. And under the same anesthetic, we're able to make a small incision to do our portion of the procedure on the testicle. It adds maybe 15 or 20 minutes to their time that they're already asleep, they're already in the operating room. And so that certainly doesn't delay their time to getting their cancer treatment. So how about the ovary? Not quite as accessible. Not quite as accessible, but again, we try our best to combine it with the port placement. Um, oftentimes, they're also undergoing biopsies, you know, if it's bone marrow or another lesion that's being biopsied. So plenty of opportunities for us to, in, you know, include the ovarian tissue um, storage piece with it. Like I alluded to earlier, it takes longer and delays therapy more if you're actually post-pubertal, even though it's standard, um, to actually be able to harvest eggs from an older girl. It's a great program, and we're uh, very happy to learn about it. And congratulations to both of you for getting this done, and I'm sure there are a lot of grateful parents and ultimately grateful children. Urologist Dr. Candace Grandberg and pediatric gynecologist Dr. Ozma Javid. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about Falls Prevention Awareness Day. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, according to the National Council on Aging, falls are the leading cause of fatal and non-fatal injuries for older Americans. Now, falls not only threaten a senior's safety, but also their independence. However, falling does not have to be an inevitable part of aging. Fall prevention programs and clinical community partnerships can substantially reduce the number of falls among seniors. 
Here to discuss fall prevention is a member of the Olmsted County Rochester Falls Prevention Program, Dr. Connie Bogard. And accompanying her is Ms. Liz Brigham, who after a bad fall had successfully taken part in evidence-based falls prevention programs. Welcome both of you to the show. Thank Hello. you. Dr. Bogard, Liz, great to have you. Thank you. So, Dr. Bogard, falls pretty common in the uh, elderly, probably too common. And, and how do you explain that? Is it just getting older, more difficult to stay upright? No. So there is a myth that says that uh, people who are getting older fall. That is really an untrue myth. So there are usually reasons that people would fall as they get older. So there are risk factors such as a disease process. So someone who may have... Uh, had a stroke, uh, Parkinson's, that obviously puts them at greater risk. Uh, but there are other factors that uh, include um, things like weakness, uh, problems with balance, problems with gait, um, might be a deficiency in vitamin D, um, it might be things that are more extrinsic factors like uh, environmental factors that could cause a fall. There may be lifestyle or habits that people use that might be more riskier habits uh, as they get older. And part of it is that they may not have uh, help, so they're doing it on their own, um, trying to be independent and maybe taking more riskier habits with now, their falls. Liz is along with you, and we're talking about elderly people and seniors. And first of all, Liz, I'm not sure that you fall into that category. You don't qualify, I'm 63 Liz. years old. I'm close. <laughs> okay, well, uh, but y- you experienced some falls. How many times did you fall, and what happened? I fell three times in the matter of about six months, but I had had a heart-lung transplant and was sick for quite a while and was weakened. Uh, the first time I fell, I would say it's because I had inappropriate shoes, and I they caused me to fall. The second time I fell, I was trying to get up a curb, and I didn't. I tried to be independent and not have anything to help me, and I fell that time. And the third time I fell, I was in my own bathroom at home, and it was in the middle of the night, and I, I don't know what, I, I tripped getting off the stool and fell. And that time I had, I broke my ribs, I had a black eye, it took my husband and I about an hour to be able to get me up. These all sound like almost stereotypical falls that someone would experience when they're recovering or when they're older. That's right. So again, falls can happen um, from a toilet, from in slipping on a slippery surface, getting out of the shower, um, on a crack, going out on your sidewalk, bad shoes, bad <laughs> shoes a pet that's underfoot that um, you trip on, a carpet tear, a rug that's in the way. So there are so many, it's like multifactorial. And so for each person, you really need to look at their intrinsic, their own factors, environmental factors, their habits, and pull all of those together to see who's at risk of falling. Now, when we, when you first came in, Liz, you, you said, she's my coach. And as part of the fall prevention program, I would suspect that that's where the two of you met, that Dr. Bogard, you were Liz's coach. First of all, what does a coach do? Well, actually, I actually have a health coach who referred me to this A Matter of Balance class that I took. And when I read what it was about, I said, that class is for me. And that's how I met Dr. Bogart here. And it was an eight-week 
obsession, half of it studying out of a book and half of it doing exercises. But I learned so much, mostly not to be afraid of falling. That was the most important part I got from that. Over eight weeks, that's what you stressed the most, Dr. Bogard? Right. So there are evidence-based programs. One would be Matter of Balance. So that program runs for eight weeks. It meets for two hours. It's educational and exercise-based. So Matter of Balance is one. Stepping On is another evidence-based program. SAIL, which is Stay Healthy and Independent for Life. And then there's also an exercise program called Tai Chi Quan, Moving for Better Balance. So these are evidence-based programs that you can get exercise, fitness, and education. And they're rolled out in communities, so volunteers may teach them. I happen to be a volunteer uh, coach for Matter of Balance. Here in the Rochester area. But this program goes over 94 different radio stations all across the country. And so how do patients find a fall prevention program if they are in Arizona or Maine right. or Washington. So across the country, there are area agencies on aging in every state. And so getting a hold of your area agency on aging, they should be able to connect you because there's a big push at present across the country to get evidence-based programs for fall prevention out into the community target those um, areas and, and, and really build on those. So when you say evidence-based, what, what, what exactly does that mean? So evidence-based means that it, they've studied it, they've looked at a population to see if you finish this program, does it decrease your fear of falling? Does it decrease your actual falls, prevent you from having to go into the hospital? So following individuals over time to see if that program really made an impact on their lives. I would have to think it's a little bit different, or maybe it's not at all if someone is elderly and just the course of you know what, what aging does to you, or in your case, Liz, when you are recovering from a major surgery. Well, I have learned that if you don't keep moving, you're going to lose it. When I came out of the hospital after one time, I couldn't walk. I was in a wheelchair, and it's taken me a year to learn how to walk again. And But I say, you can't stop moving. You can't stop moving because what happens to your body when you stop moving is trouble, and that makes your potential to fall so much greater. That, of course, pertains to elderly people, too, then. They don't have to have had a medical a surgery or something like that, just aging in general. Right. So, obviously, staying fit. Um, if you become sedentary, you're not going to have that strength to be able to move yourself. So, we really encourage people to get that ongoing exercise, 150 minutes a week of exercise, and that means both aerobic, balance training, and strengthening for older adults. So, finding that in your community in terms of exercise programming is very critical. One other question, uh, Dr. Bogard, what should you do if you fall down and you can't get up and there's nobody available? Right. So part of this is planning ahead. All right. So knowing if I should fall, what should I have prepared ahead of time? So carrying a cell phone or have a life alert pendant that you're wearing. Um, if you don't have a cell phone, have a cordless in a fanny pack that you're wearing so that you can call 911 to get assistance. But think about every room that you're in. If I should fall, what would I do? Is there a chair I could roll over, crawl to, drag myself to to get to that chair that's sturdy enough that I can use it to help me get up? So I think planning, preparation, can I get down to the floor and get back up. Maybe I practice that with someone that I love so I can at least 
if I had to do it. So, so many times older people don't get to the floor and they don't even know if they could get up if they do fall. So having a plan ahead um, is very important. If you should fall, call someone, you know, 911 versus if you're injured, knowing to do that right away versus trying to get a hold of a daughter or son to help you if you've been injured. Again, call 911. You can get a lift assist from fire department. Um, emergency medical will come transport you if you need to to the emergency department. Mayo Clinic Physical Therapy Instructor, Dr. Connie Bogard, such great advice. Really appreciate you being here. And also Liz Brigham, don't fall again. You look <laughs> fabulous. Thank you. Thanks Thank also you for much. joining us. Thank you. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our writer and social media editor for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.